if we remember the the, the theme I have for uh, today really uh, follows somewhat from last time with the Eightfold Path. And the theme today is embracing paradox. We also could call the theme the middle way. And if we remember the structure of the Eightfold Path, it's really the structure of the traditional model of training in Buddhist tradition, which is a threefold training in first ethics or our uh, approach to action, especially action in the world, and, and doing that with more integrity and, and care. And secondly, there's training in meditation. And thirdly, there's training in wisdom. And what I want to talk about today probably falls in the wisdom category. And it's actually to point towards uh, a quality of being able to embrace paradox that I think actually is a fairly, uh, represents a certain uh, maturation of wisdom. It's a, I think it's a fairly um, developed perspective to, to, to work with this. And so if this feels like it's um, stretching you some, that, that would be fine. If it feels like it's stretching me some, that would be fine. And what, what we can remember is that the, you know, the wisdom dimension depends on the, de- the development of the ethical and the meditation component. As we, as we hear this talk, I'll try to ground the wisdom dimension in that practice and, and in, in um, at the end, I'm going to try to talk about how to, how to really make in a grounded way some of the themes about embracing paradox uh, real in our daily lives. So I'm going to begin with a few stories. And the first story is from the Hasidic tradition. These stories are about the possibility of holding what seem to be paradoxical or contradictory aspects of life. It might be to hold suffering and beauty at the same time. It might be to hold both wisdom and compassion. And there's something that uh, is difficult about that. There's some, there are ways that we want to go, as it were, to one side or the other. And so these stories, I think, start to open up the theme. So the first story is from the uh, Jewish Hasidic tradition. And it seems that there was a great teacher in the Hasidic tradition. And there was another teacher who was jealous of this teacher. And he arranged a trick to discredit the teacher. And here was his trick. He would take a small bird in his hand and he he would come to the teacher before the teacher's community and he would ask the teacher, I have a bird in my hand. Is this bird alive or dead? And if the teacher said alive, he would squeeze the bird to death. And if he said dead, 
he would let the bird go. In his mind, each of these possibilities would discredit the teacher and he would acquire more control over the teacher's community. Such was his thinking. (laughs) And so he arranged this experiment. He came before the community and he asked those questions. He asked that question, is the bird I hold in my hand alive or dead? And the teacher answered, it's up to you. There's another story that is told by a teacher who's been here before named Lou Richmond, who is a Zen teacher. And he tells the story of being in his early days of Zen practice in the late 1960s and being very involved with anti-war protests. And he did not understand quite how his anti-war activism and Zen practice came together. He was confused. And so one day he went to uh, Suzuki Roshi, the great teacher who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and he asked him, what is war? And Suzuki Roshi answered, when we sit, we sit on these mats. We sit on these straw mats. And actually we have two people, because the mats are three feet by six feet, there are two people on each mat. And each person tries to straighten out the wrinkles in the mat, each from each person's side. And all the wrinkles are, are straightened out except when they get to the middle, there are a lot of wrinkles. That's war. I'll explain these a little bit a little later. <laughs> kind of letting them just be present. It's, it's, um, that has something to do with wanting to have the wrinkles out of our mats. But what about where we connect with other people? Another, a third story, this is the last story. In the, in a small meditation group that I work with in, at my home in Berkeley, we were looking at issues of livelihood and connecting it with the practice. One of the people in the group was saying, I'm a nurse practitioner. And I try to do as much good as I can. And some parts of my work, I just don't want to look at. I don't want to look at the role that the pharmaceuticals play in the medical profession. I don't want to look at some of the institutional features. It's too hard for me. It would be self-defeating. I would lose my balance. And so one of the questions that we could ask in relation to the theme of embracing paradox is, how can we actually come to hold everything with, without losing balance? How can we see 
both the beauty and the pain of life. There's a beautiful poem by Rilke which expresses this. Rilke wrote this poem at the age of about 26. So watch any judgments arise (laughs) or comparisons. (laughs) Anyway, it may not be a good poem, but I think it is. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. It's from the translation of uh, Rilke's Book of Hours by uh, Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows. It should be in the bookstore. Yeah, it's awesome poems. So in what follows, I'd like to talk about this capacity to hold both the beauty and the fear and to hold them together. And I want to do this really in uh, really in four steps. I want to first talk about our tendency to want to choose sides, which could, we could really talk about as the dualistic structure of our minds and of our culture. How we want to choose sides, how we don't want to hold it all. Our tendencies to have a very hard time doing that. Secondly, I want to talk about the Buddhist teaching of the middle way as a way of expressing this quality of holding it all and of avoiding just choosing one side of a polarity. And thirdly, I want to to explore what it actually looks like in practice to hold, hold things together that we normally want to split off. And lastly, give some concrete practices that we could take home that help us to do this in very, um, very ordinary ways. So that's what I'll explore. So it's not hard to see that we live in a, first of all, in a culture that wants us to take sides and think that we uh, will find truth with one side and not the other. In some ways, the whole culture is permeated by the metaphor of sports. You know, there's like a winner and a loser. And everything kind of has to fit into that model. And it's no coincidence that sports metaphors are so prevalent. You know, you think of politics or you think of all the dimensions of our life that there is a very um, strong way that this... It's actually not sports per se. It's a particular interpretation of sports that has there be a winner and a loser because we could imagine many other ways that sports could be constructed. And I'm not saying this is just negative, um, but it's, it tends to structure our minds in a certain way. Uh, and so we are told we can choose between Republicans and Democrats, and we have to choose one. Um, 
we have very, you know, we see in the present culture now around the, you know, around the sort of uh, crisis following 9-11, we also see ways that there are very strong pressures to have a kind of dualistic thinking. It's a war of good versus evil. You know, we have to choose sides. Either you're with us or with the terrorists. Do you know that, that line? And, um, you know, and it's, it's actually very hard to find any middle ground where one can actually be considered both patriotic and um, questioning. That middle ground is very hard to find. There's a setup a very strong setup that I think is, is very deep in our culture. It's, I'm not, this is not to point, you know, point fingers at a particular group of people, but it's a very deep phenomenon in our culture. Um, and it's very hard to get out of. There's, there's a very powerful uh, book that some of you may know by uh, R.D. Lang called Knots. And I wanted, it's, it's an incredible collection of, of showing how we get into this dualistic structure of mind. I just wanted to read the first one of these, uh, which, which um, is about the difficulty of getting out of this, what he, he actually calls it a game, in which, they're, in which are these two sides. They are playing a game. They are playing at not playing a game. If I show them that I see that they're playing a game, I shall break the rules and they will punish me. I must play their game of not seeing that I see that they're playing a game. It's almost as if to break out of the dualistic structure is hard. It's hard in the culture. It's hard interpersonally. It's also very hard in our own minds. And if we look at the ways that we ourselves are dualistic in our in our minds, in our thinking, in our in our own more in, at a more individual level, we could we could point out a lot of different phenomena. We could we could see how we tend to set up a duality of pleasure and pain. You know, again, uh, we cut through some of this conditioning when we meditate, but the typical conditioning is that. We are to only want pleasure and pleasant experiences and not want painful experiences. And to set it up so that, as it were, the purpose of our lives is to manipulate the environment, ourselves, and all others so we only have pleasant experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences. There's a strong conditioning uh, in that way. We also may set up of a duality of... Uh, of sort of good and bad, in which uh, we hope to be good and uh, hope that others don't see us as bad. And this sets up a duality in a lot of ways. It makes it, for example, often very, very hard for us really to uh, hear any constructive criticism. You know, we have to learn how to stretch in, in that way, that we, we almost... It's almost as if the conditioning is such that certain kinds of criticisms are almost taken as threats to our survival. You know? And we can see this in ourselves and we can see this in our interactions. And I was just watching it yesterday in my own work environment, how hard it is sometimes things, you know, when things get very charged and just to actually to, to have an open way to talk about what works and what doesn't work is often very difficult because of the way that we want to just be good. 
one of my teachers in graduate school uh, said that he had, we were were discussing whether there were any cross-cultural universal qualities, either, uh, you know, either ethical qualities or qualities of belief or religion or anything. And my teacher, he said, as far as I've looked across all cultures, the only thing that's held in common is one thing. Every culture thinks it's doing its everything right and its neighbors are blowing it. <laughs> the, only, the only universal across cultures, <laughs> which, which suggests, you know, suggests something like this dualistic structure as being very, very deep and, and, and ancient. We have, um, we have a dualism in which we, in our culture, we very much uh, separate life and death. You know, death is seen as something bad. Again, this doesn't exist in the same way in all cultures. In some cultures, death and life are seen as more integrated and connected. But we are, we are conditioned in many ways to, to have that duality. On a psychological level, we develop this way of segregating certain parts of ourselves that we don't want to admit that, that psychologists would call the shadow. And we tend, to, uh, we tend to have a dualism between the acceptable and the unacceptable parts of ourselves. Another way that we form a kind of set of dualistic uh, understandings is through certain views that we have. We develop uh, a series of um, views or ways of seeing the world that really give us a kind of um, fixated way of thinking that this is true. We have another, and one of the other dualisms is a dualism around truth and falsehood. We think, these are my views. I develop certain views a lot from my culture in order to make sense of an ambiguous and shifting world. And we tend, if we don't look at it carefully, to then get very fixated about our views, our concepts, you know, even if they're pretty good ones. You know, this isn't to say that we should get rid of all views, but it's to say that we tend to get fixated on them, and we tend to actually create a dualistic structure of my view right, other views wrong. Have you noticed? <laughs> you know? And what's always most amusing is that we often develop incredibly strong views about things that we know almost nothing about. <laughs> this is quite, quite miraculous. And so, and so we could say that there's a whole, uh, there's strong tendencies to almost use this dualism as a way to feel safe in the world. If I have my views and I have truth, I gain some security. If I am good, I gain some security. And the suggestion of the practice and the suggestion of the Buddha is that that's a very limited way of being. And that it's actually possible to move towards letting go of those fixations and letting go of that dualistic structure. We could say that the teachings of the Buddha are a very deep expression of the cutting through of dualism. And it's no coincidence that the Buddha talked about the middle way. 
And this was one of the expressions used to describe the whole teachings. It's the middle way between the extremes. It's an avoiding of going to any particular extreme. And one of the origins of the whole expression of the middle way came right before the Buddha's enlightenment. And it's a very powerful story for me, and one that you know, I think, that the Buddha for many years had been doing somewhat extreme ascetic practices. He worked with some of the great yogis, yogic teachers of his time, and he mastered a lot of these practices. But he also took on a very extreme asceticism to the point where he would often, I think uh, sometimes he would just eat one pea a day. And if you go to Asia or maybe at some um, Asian art museums in, in, in our country, you can see statues of the Buddha as a skeleton almost, as a living skeleton. It's said that he could push on his stomach and he would feel his skeleton. And there's a very powerful moment when the Buddha, at a certain point, was reclining by a river and a young woman named uh, Sujata came by and saw what she took to be this uh, starving person. And she offered the Buddha some rice milk. If he had kept to his ascetic practices, he never would have accepted that. But he did accept the rice milk. There was something in him which um, said that that following the extreme is not really appropriate. His fellow practitioners thought he was a slacker. And they actually kind of wrote him off. It's, It's very interesting. And what's very powerful for me, and this is something that uh, John Travis reflected a lot on, and I've really taken this interpretation from him, is that in a way, the Buddha for many years had been following what we might call a very masculine form of spiritual practice. Extreme asceticism, solitude, using the will, and so forth. And there was something about accepting the rice milk which reflected an avoidance of the extreme of a purely masculine practice and the taking on of a more of a middle way which balanced the masculine and the feminine. And we know that the Buddha, as with Jesus and others, are often taken to represent a kind of divine androgyne, a balance of the masculine and feminine. And it's very striking that after this kind of balancing, it was only a very short time after this balancing that enlightenment occurred. It's a very, I, I take that as a very, very strong story. And so that was an expression of the middle way between extremes. You know, for the Buddha, it was between the extremes of asceticism on the one hand and some kind of uh, self-indulgence on the other. It was a middle way. There's also, um, we could also say that the middle way for the Buddha also has to do with finding this middle way between pleasure and pain. In our practice, we work, and we know this very much from our very ordinary meditation practice, we work to cut through the conditioning 
to grasp onto what's pleasant and to push away what's painful. We try to develop a middle way between pleasure and pain so that we're not driven by either of them, so that we can have, have some wisdom. There's also a very interesting way that the Buddha took a middle way towards most of the more metaphysical debates of the time. And so, for example, in terms of the famous teaching of not-self that perplexes every meditator, this teaching that uh, we sometimes hear that there's not really a self in the usual way we think about it, when you actually look to the Buddha's text, he actually never really said there's not a self. Rather, when he was asked, he refused to say that there was a self or not a self. He said that he he essentially was saying that either one of those are extremes. To deny that there is a self is an extreme. To affirm a self as some separate absolute entity is also an extreme. And the middle way is to find the territory in which we move between those. Now this is this can perhaps suggest that sometimes Buddhists have not at all followed the middle way to the extent that they've become dogmatic. That we have the potential to go against the middle way anytime we're dogmatic. And it's rather striking that this is always a danger for Buddhist practice. And when we can read a lot of Buddhist history as trying to be, bring back the tradition to the true middle way and to finding that balance. And one of the great uh, philosophers of Buddhism named Nargajana, who some of you have probably read, and there's a book of his translations of his work by Stephen Batchelor in the bookstore. Nargajana took on his task to show that if you hold dogmatically to any view, you will end up affirming the opposite of your view. Because, as it were, each view comes as part of a system of two opposites. And you can only affirm one side if you tacitly assume the other, because they're a system. And so Nargajana tried to show how any fixated view is a violation of the middle way. So how do, we, how do we hold opposites together? How do we come to be able to be present with these opposing qualities, pleasure and pain, beauty and suffering, wisdom and delusion? How, how do we actually do that in, in ourselves? One way that's very helpful is humor. And I was reflecting that, as some of you know, I had training last, um, last year and some of this year in the Clown School of San Francisco. And I, I don't know if I can perform right now, but you know, I, I had public performances in San Francisco. And the training we had as clowns was to be able to hold the opposites together. If you look to Charlie Chaplin or some of the great clowns, 
and I don't claim to be a great clown, <laughs> but what our practice was, we would be given exercises like, okay, choose two opposites and hold them together in one moment. And there's something profoundly humorous about that for me to be able to be within, you know, it's like you, were, it's like you with your busy mind, sleepy mind, in rapid succession. To have both of those in the same mind, there's something funny about that, Not, nothing personal. <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of practice that I would do. I would, can, I, can I be within one little three-minute skit both incredibly powerful and incredibly vulnerable at the same time? Can I hold those two together? And that's what we practice. Okay, your assignment. You've got two minutes. Devise a three-minute skit in which you are both... And then kind of slowly have a transition where you show how that, lead, that can lead to its opposite. Into... into <laughs> and it's very, it's, um, we find this also in, some of you may know the work of Joanna Macy, that there are very powerful practices that she does um, which help explore a lot of the underlying emotions, particularly that we have in relation to the world. And I was actually just this weekend working with a group of people at a retreat where we did a practice called the Truth Mandala. And it's a practice where we take, usually takes about an hour and a half in which we invite people, if they feel ready, to go into certain territories. And we, it's, it's done in a ritualized way so that we have a... In the room, we have four quadrants. And we have, in one quadrant, we have a stone symbolizing fear. Another quadrant, we have um, dry leaves symbolizing some kind of emptiness or confusion. We, in another quadrant, we have an, a, um, the dry leaves actually symbolize sadness or grief. And we have an empty bowl that symbolizes more emptiness. And we also have a stick, which symbolizes anger. And what we find in doing those practices is that when people go into that territory, they actually find like something else is there. When they go into sadness, they find that love is close by. When they go into fear, there's courage. That's not so far away. When they go into um, a sense of emptiness or confusion in a really deep way, something about new possibilities, creativity often emerges. When they go into anger, there can be something very positive, which is like a passion for justice. And there's something that's very deep in the psyche in which the opposites are kind of linked together. I think we know this by the fact that often when we find ourselves judging another person, why is that? It's because we're often critical of something in ourselves that we haven't recognized. Do you know that one? Carl Jung said that that which we don't honestly look at in ourselves, we will tend to project out into the world and encounter externally as demonic. Very powerful statement, isn't it? that which we don't fully recognize in ourselves, we will tend to project out into the world external to us and encounter as demonic. That, that could explain a great deal of human history. <laughs> you know. I also think of Thich Nhat Hanh in Vietnam. Thich Nhat Hanh in Vietnam, in a situation of grave conflict, refused to take sides. 
Do you know that story? It's a very powerful one. He refused to take sides. He refused to align himself either with the South Vietnamese aligned with the Americans or the North Vietnamese aligned with some of the communist world. And he stayed in that situation tried, trying to be a peacemaker, trying to avoid the extremes. And it was a very dangerous position because the one side, you know, the, the <coughs> South Vietnamese called him a communist and the North Vietnamese called him an agent of the CIA. And many of his co-workers were killed. But it was really trying to keep this, um, both keep this uh, sense of the middle way and also actually stay there, not do it from a distance, but actually be in that, right in the middle of the situation. There's something about the, you know, if you think of the Dalai Lama, I think he's someone who holds incredibly these opposites. The Dalai Lama regularly hears stories of profound horror from the refugees who come from Tibet. He, I think as you may know, he asks for every refugee from Tibet who's just come out of a Chinese-occupied Tibet to come and tell his or her story to the Dalai Lama. And he hears everything. And those of us who've met him know that there's a profound quality of laughter humor and lightness at the same time. How is that even possible? How is that even possible? It's that quality of holding, holding the opposites. In Mahayana tradition, it was often a real emphasis. If you think of Zen practice and the, the koan practice, the practice of saying, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping or whatever, it's a kind of an attempt to take us out of the, the opposites. It's a way to take us out of the usual dualistic ways of thinking so that we kind of break through to a way of perceiving the world in which we're not controlled by either of the opposites, in which we're not controlled by dualistic thinking. So... One, one of the ways that this is expressed in a very um, almost poetic way, but also uh, could be a little bit um, perplexing, this is Dogen, the great Zen teacher from Japan, talking about this way that I think holds the opposites together. When all dharmas are Buddha dharma, there are enlightenment and delusion, practice, life and death, Buddhas and creatures. When the 10,000 dharmas are without self, There are no delusion, no enlightenment, no Buddhas, no creatures, no life, and no death. The Buddha way transcends being and non-being. Therefore, there are life and death, delusion and enlightenment, creatures and Buddhas. However, flowers fall, giving rise to attachment, and weeds spring up, arousing antipathy. To carry the self forward and realize the 10,000 dharmas is delusion, that the 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self is enlightenment. It is Buddhas who enlighten delusion. It is creatures who are deluded in enlightenment. Further, there are those who are enlightened about who are enlightened about enlightenment. There are those who are deluded within delusion. When beings are true, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, one need not be aware of being Buddha. However, one is the realized Buddha and further advances in realizing Buddha. 
Maybe that's why you're practicing Vipassana. <laughs> but do, do you get the sense of holding of opposites taken to a poetic form? I mean, it's, it's actually, we can hear that in different ways, but I think it's pointing to this inner experience. And so I want to end just by pointing to a few concrete practices that can help us work in this way in an ordinary way, because you might be asking, well, okay, sounds great, but how do I do it? So, first of all, just the ordinary meditation practice is a practice in holding the opposites. I think we can see that pretty clearly in looking at how we relate to pleasure and pain. Right? We can see that we're breaking through, when we do the simple practice, we're breaking through a kind of dualistic structure in which we say, okay, I only want the good, I only want the pleasant, I only want this. We open to something broader, we open to something bigger. So that's, I think, of the fundamental practice. A second practice that I think is really crucial here is investigating attachment to views. Can we take that as a practice? How would we take that as a practice? One thing is just to actually keep noticing when there is attachment to a view. It's to really ask ourselves, can I really look carefully at my own charge around wanting to be right? Can I try to see where I'm attached to a view, even if it's a great view? Even if it's a view about spirituality or politics or whatever? Can I see where I'm attached to a view? Can I start noting it? If, you're, if you have a hard time seeing where you're attached, ask your friends. <laughs> another, pr- another practice related to attachment to views is, is one of my favorite practices, and it's something that I learned about 15 years ago from uh, Robert McDermott, who used to be uh, president of CIAS, and I knew him before he was president there, and we were part of a group of people who were meeting. Uh, it was actually a three-year program called Revisioning Philosophy. We were trying to bring the discipline of philosophy back to its origins and wisdom, as opposed to just being smart-ass, which is the dominant tendency. <laughs> and and we, we, he had noticed, and we had noticed, that here we were trying to kind of bring a spiritual dimension to, to philosophy, and people had problems and still wanted to say that their view was correct. You know? And so he gave us this very beautiful practice, which I have really learned, uh, used a lot and used a lot in my teaching. He said, when you find yourself having some inner crit- criticism of someone else's view, take it as the starting point for inquiry. When you notice that someone has said something, you just say, oh my God, how could that person say that? Take it as a starting point for inquiry. And it can be an inquiry in a lot of different ways. You can, first of all, just notice what it's like. What are the thoughts going on? Give some inner attention. You can also say, what is it about this person's view that is so utterly horrid? And really see what's there. It might, be, it might take you back to some inner pain which you hadn't even realized was driving your, your um, attachment to the view and the criticism of the other's view. You can also ask the question, what can I learn from the other person's view? Is there anything possible that I might learn from the other person's view? 
There almost always would be. And what I um, do myself and like to encourage others to do is actually take this as an ongoing practice. When you're with, you know, when you're in a group, when you're um, in a family, do this as a practice. Look into where you're attached. Look into where you criticize others. Take it as a point of inquiry into attachment to views. Basically study whenever the mind takes really rigid sides on anything. Whenever the mind goes to extremes, that's a place where we can study and work to dissolve somewhat this dualistic structure. And there's one, there's one other practice I want to mention, which I've thought about most in the context of the Brahma-vihara, the, the Buddhist teachings of metta and compassion and uh, joy and equanimity. There's a very interesting way in which we can work with the opposites of wisdom and compassion in our practice. We will each personally tend to go to one side or the other. We will each tend to, to either emphasize the wisdom dimension more or the compassion dimension more. You know, and often it's very gender related. You know, men will kind of go to the wisdom, you go to a you know, study groups, they tend to be more men, but it's not it's not universal. And what I, what is very beautiful about the Brahma Vihara is that they make very clear that it's necessary to balance the energies of metta and compassion on the one hand and equanimity on the other. Equanimity is a wisdom dimension. And so one can do those four Brahma-vihara and one finds oneself being able to hold both the wisdom and the compassion. Because I think as we develop more in those, that helps us to hold everything. That helps us to be able to be in that hospital and hold as a nurse practitioner both the good things and then also the difficult things. And for some of us it may mean if we only have a mindfulness practice, develop a metta or compassion practice that will serve to actually broaden your capacity to hold both. If you're primarily working on metta, do the mindfulness practice. Have both of them going at once. I think this is the key, to have both of these going at once, to hold both together. So I want to end with a poem by our favorite Buddhist non-Buddhist named Rumi talking about this quality of holding the opposites together. Or you could also say going beyond the opposites. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.